ever heard of Bump in the Night? But there weren't any Ghostbusters to call? Have you ever seen a televised crime that you couldn't stop talking about 10 years later? Or have you ever looked up into the stars and wondered if there really was more to what's out there? Well, you're in the right place because together we are going to talk about the facts. Hello, 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 everyone. It is your beloved host, Elizabeth Fieri, and I'd like to welcome you to season two of Let's Talk About the Facts. I know that I abruptly left you for a couple of weeks, but I very much needed to take some time off due to unfortunate health conditions just sneaking up on me like a smack cam. But here we are. If I can encourage anyone to do anything, please take the time and break that you need for your physical and mental health. There's no point in not doing so. Um, That's a hard thing for some people to learn who have experienced financial hardships or just prolonged stress and deep anxiety, but honestly... Do what you need to do and listen to your body. I am saying that mostly to me, and hopefully somebody else will appreciate that advice as well. But today, I have been promising this episode, which is now turning into episodes um, on Twitter, for quite some time, and I'm very excited, but not in like the positive way to be sharing it with you from the perspective of someone who grew up in this state and got to listen to people's opinions as it went on. Now, at the time this case happened, I both did not listen because I didn't live there, but I also was, as they would say, knee-high to a grasshopper, meaning I think I was like two. But, okay, it doesn't, it's going to be a hard one. So I'm just going to say, hold on to your hats and your sunglasses because you're going to get angry. If you want to hear about a horrible police investigation, zeroing in, on suspects and not giving a crap about anything else and the worst display of courtroom behavior you're probably going to hear this week this is your episode so we are jumping into the robin hood hills murders so in west memphis arkansas there is the west memphis three and that's what puts west memphis arkansas on the map Now, West Memphis 3 generally refers to the three men convicted as teenagers in 1994 of the 1993 brutal murders of three young boys in West Memphis. So the prosecution primarily used the satanic panic in the most basest of ways. It was like, oh, if you wear black and listen to hard rock and all of these things, you are a satanist. Don't take my word for it. We're going to jump into it, but I will tell you at the end of this episode where you can get trial footage and hear basically what I said word for word. Um, 
So essentially, with that rhetoric, which was prevalent throughout the Bible Belt in the early to late 90s and early to late 2000s and possibly still today, um, the these three high school students were targeted um, at that time and basically were told that they were motivated to kill three young children as a part of a satanic ritual, though there is no evidence to back that up. Of course, some people will say that's my opinion. However, it is factually correct that there is no evidence to tie any three to this case. However, we're going to set that aside for a moment, and we're going to talk about the forgotten West Memphis Three. And that refers to the boys because they were brutally murdered in West Memphis, and they have not received justice. They have not had their case solved. Their killers have, or killer, has not been put behind bars. And that is the problem, the systemic issue, not only Arkansas, but I would say in Southern culture, is that they bullseye somebody, they say that this is our guy and we're going to make all of the evidence align with this person. And they don't care if a perpetrator is still out there. And it's... It blows my mind. Honestly, it blows my mind. So, kind of no matter what can be gleaned from the multiple documentaries, interviews, and footage that is available, which is a lot, um, what we do know is that a botched police investigation cannot prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the three teenagers at the time had... Um, anything to do with this beyond a reasonable doubt and that is what it takes to be convicted that is what a jury's job is is that you need a reasonable if there is reasonable doubt you can't convict somebody Um, that's kind of part of our legal system and so keep that in mind please as we go through this I did narrow down a lot of the information after I watched the court document or I would say document documentaries oh my gosh so sorry um and pulled the facts together in hopefully a tighter way for this part one and I'm basically going to end up with the finale of how all of these trials played out in 1994. So also a big difference is going to be that you are stuck with just me today. I felt like who better to interview than myself. And since the podcast is changing and evolving and adjusting, I decided to give it a try out to like see what it felt like just to be on my own, and if any of you could stand my voice for that long. Um, but don't worry. If you love the guest episodes, they're still going to be there. But coordinating is so hard, and it was getting to be such a handful. 
as you may imagine, have you ever tried to coordinate anything? So this week, it's you and me, baby. We got this. And I feel like this is the perfect case to try that out because it's going to get hard. Um, we are venturing deep into the South and we are going to dig right into one of the worst cases stemming from the satanic panic. It is not the preschool case. If you know what I'm talking about, you know, ouch, we'll cover that another day. But this one I truly believe is unsolved. And this is the Robin Hood Hills murders. So from that introduction, I'm sure you were going to expect me to say the West Memphis Three, which would be a common misnomer in my opinion, because the actual case would be, as I lay before you today in all technicality, doesn't truly have anything to do with those known as the West Memphis Three. They were wrongfully convicted, um, but as we'll see by the end of all of the evidence and all of the arguments presented in court, that um, they weren't there. Like, they weren't doing anything. If you have anything you'd like to say, feel free to tweet me at Talk about facts, T A L K A B T F A C T S. If you have an opinion, I'd love to hear it. Of course, I can only hear polite points of view. It's this like crazy thing I have going on with me, and I just can't hear rude comments or read them even, or like rude people. I just can't, it doesn't work out. But I know my listeners aren't those kind of people, and so like, I know you guys aren't gonna have a problem with it, but like, in general, I just, I can't. So, uh, but feel free. Let me know what you think. If you have a differing opinion and you feel like they were there, I'd love to hear it and love to hear what you think based on the evidence um, that we have. So, as usual, the context for this, um, Bill Clinton, who was the former governor of Arkansas, had just been sworn in as president of the U.S., In February of that year, the first bombing of the World Trade Center happened, resulting in the death of six people. The victims' names were added to the 9-11 memorial after their memorial was destroyed. We would have the wake of siege happen between the FBI and the Branch Davidians in Waco, Texas. That was also in February. That resulted in 75 deaths, including their leader, David Koresh. I doubt I'll ever cover that as it's been covered so, so, like, deeply and heavily. Um, However, the first Got Milk ad aired. Michael Jordan retired from basketball to go to baseball. And soon we would get the greatest movie of all time, Space Jam, to announce his return to basketball. Also, we had actor Brandon Lee, who was the son of Bruce Lee. He would unfortunately passed away during the filming of The Crow, which is a potentially potentially another episode I would like to cover one day. River Phoenix also passed away due to an alleged drug overdose outside of the Viper Room in Los Angeles. And finally, we were given both Jurassic Park and Dazed and Confused, therefore the iconic saying of, 
All right, all right, all right. Overall, though, it was like a very, very macabre year for Americans. And speaking of that, we're going to just jump right in it. So I'm going to go ahead and give a content warning. This is going to be difficult to hear because it is about three young boys and what would have happened to them. Um, I don't go into too much deep detail. And um, for those who want more of a forensic analysis, I'm towards the end, I'll send you to another podcast that does do a deep dive by professionals. But just in case, this is the section where I will actually talk about the crime and then it will be over. I'm not going to go back and reference any of it after this. All right. On May 5th, 1993, uh, there are three boys, Steve Edward Branch, who went by Stevie, Christopher Mark Byers, who I believe went by Chris, and James Michael Moore, who went by Michael. Um, They are reported missing in West Memphis, Arkansas. The first police report was made by Chris Byers' adoptive father, John Mark Byers, at about 7 p.m. So all boys were three eight-year-old second graders at the West Memphis School of Weaver Elementary. They were best friends, all Cub Scouts, and they were all last seen around 6 p.m., by neighbors, and they were riding their bikes near North 14th Street in West Memphis. So, a little bit about the boys is that Stevie Branch was the son of Stephen and Pamela Branch. They divorced when he was a wee baby, and his mother had custody and later married a man named Terry Hobbs. At the time of his disappearance, He was an honor student, and he had a younger half-sister. So Terry and Pam Hobbs are the parents that basically, I would say, represented Stevie Branch. Uh, Chris Byers, he was born to Melissa Defer and Ricky Murray. They divorced when he was four. She married John Mark Byers, and he adopted him. And then he also had a stepbrother. So John Mark Byers and Melissa Byers represented uh, Chris during proceedings. And then uh, Michael Moore was the son of Todd and Dana Moore. He was often considered the leader of the group, and he loved to wear a scouting uniform outside of meetings. He had an older sister. So... John Mark Byers, I believe, filed a report first, and while filing that report, he did say that Chris may have been afraid to come home as he had gotten to some trouble earlier that resulted in a spanking by belt. As the officer left, he did immediately search the surrounding areas and known areas that the boys liked to play. Uh, That night, the search was not organized, which makes zero sense to me, as we know that once a child is known to be missing, you have very precious hours to search. In 1993, that was well known by then. We tend to give grace the farther back it goes, but I think we knew to look for children expeditiously 
by 1993. Um, so... The boys were last seen by three neighbors, all who signed affidavits to see them playing together around 6.30 that night. And they also saw Terry Hobbs, Stevie Branch's stepfather, calling them home. The initial police search that night was kind of limited, mostly friends and family and neighbors did the search that night. Uh, there's no reason given that why the police didn't really do a more thorough search that night. If the answer is because it was dark, um, I'll gutturally scream because if it's dark, then you have three eight-year-old boys out in nowhere, Arkansas, um, in the dark, alone and scared. Maybe one of them is hurt. Maybe one of them is lost. Or all three of them are lost. Maybe they can't find each other. What if one of them fell down and broke their leg and the other two refuse to leave him behind? You don't know. Why would you not look right now? <laughs> like, excuse me? Okay, moving on. So, uh, the police began a more thorough search for the boys around 8 a.m. on Monday the 6th. <clears throat> That was led by the Crittenden County Search and Rescue. So these searchers canvassed all of West Memphis. I'm going to say allegedly because they primarily focused on Robin Hood Hills, where these boys were last seen. And there's no sign of the boys, despite the use of shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder chain method of searching. So keep that in mind. That's why I say alleged. Then, around 1.45 p.m., Steve Jones, there's a lot of Steves in this, he's a juvenile parole officer. He finds a boy's black shoe floating in a creek leading to a major drainage canal in Robin Hood Hills. So they do a subsequent search of the ditch, and it basically reveals the bodies of three boys. The area had a cursory visit the night before by the friends and neighbors. Therefore, the boys could not have been there that night. But what about that canvassing of arm and shoulder chain method? Was that not covered? I don't know. I don't have that piece of information. Um, the basically paperwork for all of this was so disorganized and disorderly I wish I could be that bad at my job like I made fun of Mississippi but really I don't think I have enough breath in my body to make the jokes that I have against like how poorly this was done we're not even close okay so hold your breath this is terrible this is the details of the crime, because we have now found the bodies. So, the boys had been stripped, and they were hogtied by their own shoelaces. Their clothing was found in the creek. Some, was, some of it had been twisted around sticks that were thrust into the ditch bed, so it wouldn't move. Um, 
All uh, the clothes had mostly been turned inside out, but two pair of the boys' underwear were never recovered. So to hogtie something, by definition, is to tie an animal with all four feet together. So if you think of a, an actual hog, they would have to be on their back and all four legs tied together. Now, what these boys were found in is something similar to hog tying. And it's common in what one would think when it comes to using this term in reference to humans. And that is laying on one's stomach, not back, and being incapacitated by having all four limbs tied behind their back. If the limbs were tied toward the front, there's a stronger chance that a person could break free as the fingers are close to the tying situation, depending on the method. But interestingly enough, there was a variant still to what was done here, and it was matched with all boys. The shoelaces had been removed from all the boy sneakers. There were two pair of black laces and a pair of white. What's interesting is that one boy had two black in his tie, and then the other two had a black and a white. They were tied right leg to right wrist, left leg to left wrist, instead of being bound all together. This does allow for a bit more movement, both by the boys themselves, but also the perpetrator. So, uh, Christopher Byers had lacerations to various parts of his body and mutilation to his genitals. The autopsies performed by forensic pathologist Frank J. Peretti showed that Byers died of multiple injuries, but more in Branch died of multiple injuries with drowning. Police initially suspected that the boys had been assaulted. However, expert testimony later disputed this finding. Trace amounts of sperm DNA were found on a pair of green pants. Sorry. A pair of pants. Can't even read my own handwriting. Uh, recovered from the scene. Prosecution claim, or prosecution experts claim Byers injuries were the result of a knife attack and would have been purposefully castrated by the murder. The defense experts claim that the injuries were probably the result of post-mortem animal activity. The police believed that the boys were assaulted and killed at the location where they were found. However, the assault was unlikely to have occurred at the creek, at least. Later, I will explain why. Byers was the only one to have drugs in his system. His prescribed Ritalin for the treatment of ADHD. The level was lower than it should be, and his stepfather stated that he may not have taken his medication the day of the disappearance. For a more comprehensive and forensic look at the boys' injuries, autopsies, and speculation regarding these, I'd like to refer you to the episode regarding the Forgotten West Memphis Three by the Murder Squad. The hosts are professionals, and they have access to reports that I don't. 
and also have a solid discussion on some of the additional thoughts that have circulated around the injuries that cropped up over the years. So, moving on, that is how the boys were found. Very... It is very disturbing, even... If it were to be found now, that it's hard to imagine that being the scene and coming up onto it. Like so many of us now in 2021, we are so hardened and so jaded and we've seen and been through so much. But if we were to come upon that scene, I think we still would be shaken to our core. Um, I don't mean to say that not all crimes are horrific, but we have more access to television and internet and all sorts of things where in 1993, things were still fresh and horrifying. Like, we're a lot more hardened, I would say. So... You know who our boys are. You know what's happened. I do want to take a moment and talk about the actual town of West Memphis because it does play a very important role into how this happened. And sometimes it's actually hard to imagine what it's like to live there. And even though I spent many, many years in Arkansas, I uh, I didn't spend any time in a small town, so to speak, I spent a few months in a town of about 17,000 and truth be told, I was terrified most of the time because I didn't have the comforts of a city around me and I've lived in a city my entire life. Um, So when I lived in Arkansas, it was in Little Rock and I have driven through West Memphis on my way to Memphis, Tennessee. But it's kind of easy to miss. It's a very small town compared. And like, you know, I'm in the metropolis of Los Angeles. I'm like smack dab in the middle. And the further away that my life gets from living in the South, the harder it is to like kind of wrap my head around these places, even though I know them in a sense. But I think what I remember the most is the people and how they acted and how they spoke and how they treated people. Those are the things that don't leave you. Um, So West Memphis is the largest city in Crittenden County, Arkansas. I will say it does butt up, I believe, to the Mississippi River, and directly across is Memphis, Tennessee. So it is on the easternmost... easternmost uh, border of Arkansas and the Mississippi River is actually quite beautiful there is a um like a gorgeous bridge and when you cross it that says welcome to Tennessee and then up above and then when you come back across it, it says welcome to Arkansas and it's got like the license plate kind of decorations it's it's really pretty like I don't know. I never got bored of it. Um, but I-40 is the main road that you take to get through there. And that cuts straight through Little Rock. And if you actually take I-40 
and go west, you will end up almost in LA. Fun fact. Done that drive. Um, so, directly across the Mississippi from Memphis, hence West Memphis, in the 1990 census, its population was 28,256, wait, 59 people. In 2010, it was 26,245 residents. So it's been slowly declining since the 80s. However, that may sound like a lot of people. It's not. <laughs> it's really, really not. That's the size where you know literally everyone or you know someone who is related to them. Um, it's So it's not a huge challenge. It's just a hop, skip, and a jump away from one. So more likely people either work in Memphis or they work in town. Um, Memphis is always booming. They have a giant glass pyramid that Bass Pro Shop uglified by putting its logo on it. I'm never going to forgive them for it. But, you know, that tracks in the South. Um, they also have a Parthenon replica, which for all you Southerners who are Greek mythology buffs, after this pandemic, it's a fun place. And I really enjoyed it. It's like going to, like, the Getty Villa in L.A. Um, but West Memphis is not known to hold the wealth of Arkansas. And especially on that side of the state, it is kind of on the poorer side, Arkansas in general is a poorer state like people have a lower cost of living but trailer parks are common which you know that terrifies the hell out of me because of tornadoes but you know tornadoes happen in arkansas i know i've been through more than one however trailer parks are also a way to keep people unable to save enough money to afford a more stable home but again that's another conversation entirely. West Memphis, especially in the early 90s, had a huge poverty issue. Education was not well-funded. There were hardly any programs that assisted at-risk students or, honestly, adults. And this plays into the story big time. But as a side note, in 94, there was a memorial for the three boys on the playground of Weaver Elementary. Um... And it did get refurbished in 2013 for the 20th anniversary by uh, the school's principal, Sheila Grissom, who led the charge on raising the funds. I do think it's a beautiful thing for the boys. Um, part of me wonders what the repercussion was regarding the, remor the memorial, especially so close to the trial and whatnot. But we'll move into the investigation, and this is the part where you buckle in, hold on tight, and know you're going to get mad. All right. <clears throat> so since the early 90s, wait, sorry, early 80s, many police officers have attended seminars on satanic ritual abuse. They have been taught that an underground evil internationally controlled network of satanic cults kidnapped torture, kill, and sometimes eat young children in their rituals. By the mid-90s, most police officers had concluded SRA was either non-existent or extremely rare. If it did exist, then they would have it 
expected to discover hard evidence of ritual killing during the previous 15 years of dedicated criminal investigation. Some perpetrators who would have violated cult secrecy and provided evidence to the police, implicating fellow cult members. A conspiracy as large as satanic rituals, like, they could not have been kept hidden for that long. Think about the Illuminati, like, you know, that's a, that's a bar- like, terribly kept secret. Like, there's always going to be a turncoat. Scientology, we got documentaries, it's not going to work. Secret cults always come out, right? So even though the evidence was missing, police officers still believe in the existence. Probably even till today? I can think of a couple. Um, so the West Memphis investigators were under tremendous community pressure. Because, you know, mm, mm, to quickly find the persons responsible for this terrible crime. So much so that they're going to make it up. So one of the West Memphis police at the crime was a juvenile probation officer. He gave the opinion that the scene showed the results of satanic rituals. He felt like the only person in the area that was capable of such a murder was a young man named Damien Eccles. Some of you may be familiar with those who ended up essentially playing patsy to this crime. Here we go. So, we have Jesse Miss Kelly, Damien Eccles, and Jason Baldwin. But let's talk about Jesse Miss Kelly first. Correct that that probation officer basically set Damien up to fail in that moment. Um, but he, there's like kind of a domino chain of events that would happen. And it all starts with Jesse Miss Kelly's false confession. If you hear the shuffling of paper, I wrote down a lot. So, Jesse was, I think, like, kind of a friend of Damien Eccles and Jason Baldwin. Jason Baldwin and Damien Eccles were best friends at the time. And I think they kind of ran in the same crowd. Now, Jesse was brought in by the police and questioned so long and so hard that he ended up giving a false confession. And basically what a false confession would do is put Damien and Jason in a place where they weren't and put Jesse in a place where he wasn't. He had an alibi and so did the others. And the police would continue to use that false confession with incorrect answers, such as the time of the murder and, or murders, I should say, and the type of ligature used for the boys being tied up. It was wild, but they were allowed to keep it in. Any judge worth their salt would have tossed that immediately because it was obtained under duress. It was absolutely ridiculous. 
So we had a chief inspector. His name is Gary Gitchell. You're going to hate this guy by the end of it, but you know, hey, I already do. So Damien was not the type to want to participate in church activities. Like, he did go, and according to his family, he attended and I wouldn't say enjoyed himself is the right word. We don't know how his brain felt about it, but he wasn't like, ugh, church, according to his family. Um, but he was branded an outcast. He enjoyed heavy metal music, Metallica. Metallica actually lent their music to the documentary Paradise Lost, um, which is the first time they've lent their music out to anything. Um, he wore a lot of black. He uh, was interested in Wicca and learning about other religions. Um, and that really branded him as an outcast. And as a Satan worshiper, which is very interesting because Satan worship isn't really like a thing like that. Like it's Satanism is different, but okay. We'll talk about that in a minute. But direct quote from Christopher Byer's mother. She said, I never hated anyone in my life. And I hate these three and the mothers that bore them. That's the kind of, you know, cheery stuff that you hear in West Memphis. And then there's um, an interview with Pam Hobbs, the uh, mother of Stevie Branch. She freaks out about being on TV and she's laughing and saying it wasn't her fault that her son was murdered. And the TV interviewer oddly asks her if she's contemplated suicide and she says she felt like dying but not suicide and she says that they look like satanic believers because they look like punks and then she has stevie's i guess a uh, cub scout bandana and she wears it on her head the most insane way possible and she I can't say that she looks great in that moment. Um, all three of the teen's parents believe in their innocence. They know that their sons didn't do something like this, especially Jesse Miss Kelly's. He was in another town box, not boxing, uh, wrestling. Um, but then you see John Markerbyers. And this man is possibly the most awkward man. He seems to be overcompensating. And remember, he's the stepfather of Christopher Byers. He seems to be overcompensating. He starts leading church. He accuses them of homosexuality. The fact that that's even an accusation is bizarre, but he equates that to satanic principles or whatever. And he seems to know way too much detail. Um, Jason is accused of being an occult because he wears Metallica t-shirts, even though he attends church and claims Christianity. Um, and then in an interview with Damien, Damien, he seems to just know his fate. He knows that he's different and he's poor and that's why they're coming for him. But back to Jesse's, um, false confession. 
So Jesse, his attorney tells him that he's operating below average. And I was like, what the fuck? You don't have to, you don't have to say it like that. Uh, his father is sure he's innocent. Uh, Jesse's confession was recorded, not written. Um, he is definitely heard, uh, just agreeing with officers. And it very much reminds me of Brendan Dassey, where that confession is clearly coerced. Um, he was 17 years old at the time. They say that he had an IQ of 72. And though IQ is not really a credible test or indicator of intelligence, Jesse showed a lot of signs of lower emotional intelligence, impressionability, and a deep fear of the authority of the police. He had been questioned for hours and hours. All of these are strong characteristics of and indicative of an individual growing up poor in a small town with either learning disabilities or disadvantages. Welcome to Arkansas. We don't care about you. Um, but additionally, when you listen to his taped confession, the fact that it's not written in his own handwriting is kind of horrifying to me. But he doesn't, he doesn't get to say what he believes and have it believed. He had continued saying, I wasn't there, I wasn't there, I wasn't there, I wasn't there until the officers are like, but you were there, but you were there. And he just wants to leave. You can tell he just wants to leave. Now, he in his confession, he says that the murders happen at noon, which isn't possible, and that a rope was used to tie the boys up when it was clearly their shoelaces. And... It's still allowed. Now, his trial is split because that alleged confession would implicate Jason and Damien. Therefore, he is tried separately, 110 miles away in Corning, Arkansas, which is not far enough for bias control. So he is tried in the Clay County Courthouse. The presiding judge is somebody... I think should be disbarred and removed from the bench. A man named David Burnett. Um, in part two, I'll explain why. They were concerned about the safety of him because of death threats. So they wanted to like bring metal detectors in. They put him in um, a bulletproof vest. So clearly we are not in a situation where somebody is getting a fair trial. If you see, if you're a juror and you see someone coming in with a bulletproof vest and you hear all of these outrages, like, and you have jurors who most likely aren't kept away from media, he should have been tried in somewhere like Little Rock where it's more fair and more balanced. But, of course not, because they wanted to get the... Um, they wanted to get the, the guilty verdict that they did get. But 
The prosecutor was a man named John N. Fogelman. He did not make a good argument, but we'll talk about it. And the defense is Dan Stidman, who I believe remained with him throughout his entire time as a prisoner. Now, Jesse Miss Kelly Sr., Jesse's father, he remains steadfast in his son's innocence. And his stepmother, um, not the current woman that his father was married to because they had broken up. His father had a new girlfriend. But his stepmother, since he was four, um, she felt like she had to be there to protect him. And she talked about how Jesse, basically, it took a long time for him to trust her and to not to be sure that she wouldn't leave him. And it was heartbreaking. And you basically get this picture of what a sensitive guy he was on top of the fact that basically everything that you see that's videoed of him, he is authentically sensitive. And again, it just reminds me so much of Brendan Dassey or honestly, vice versa, of where you took somebody who just wanted all of it to stop. He was like, I'll do whatever. I want it to stop. I didn't do anything. I know I'm innocent. I want to go home. And that's not what happened. So you have Todd Moore. He's the father of Michael Moore. He did not give a shit about the rights of the accused. Um, they did not give a shit about innocent until proven guilty. The police fed them incorrect information, creating the bias across town. There were rumors about, like, sex and orgy, um, like, cult practices. Who started those rumors? Because it cost those boys everything. Like, they didn't fight it. They had to let it go. Um... These boys were just themselves, and that's how they were found guilty. Like, basically, whatever you're told to do when you're being bullied, you were f they were found guilty for doing it. Um, the media kept flinging mud at these boys to, point, to the point where, like, the lawyer had to come in and just be like, do not ever speak to the anybody you don't know because it's harming Jesse's case. Um... There's a like recording of John Mark Byers threatening to kill them if they're acquitted, which makes it seem so wrong because I feel like if they're acquitted, that means that there was not enough evidence to prove that they did this. There so easily could be somebody else that was the perpetrator you have honestly no evidence and uh todd moore says yeah what kind of range do we have in that courtroom and in that same like mini interview he has a gun and he's shooting a pumpkin and for me i'm not shocked because this is arkansas but at the same time the fact that like that's okay for an adult to say you are innocent until you're proven guilty beyond a shadow of a doubt and 
even if they're acquitted, you're going to kill them? I mean, technically making threats is illegal too, but you know, hey, whatever. So Gary Gitchell gets up on the stand and he's talking about how Jason, sorry, I'm so sorry, Jesse was handed a photo of one of the bodies and apparently he stared at the photo for a moment and that's why he's guilty. A 17-year-old boy who has probably never seen a dead body or anything who's probably horrified that he's been handed this stares at it for a moment and now he's guilty. And when he's asked why he did that, he said it's the answer was to evoke a response. Yeah, but if he didn't do it, you just handed him something that evoked a response, most likely a fear of disgust, of terror, of all sorts of things that when you see something that's real life and not in a movie, like it's one thing to hear it, it's another thing to see it, and another thing to know that you're being accused of doing it. And you just see this asshole chomping on his gum in court, knowing that he's wrong. And Jesse is terrified throughout this trial. He can barely, he can't even keep his head up. And when they show the images, the Hobbs walk out. Like, Terry Hobbs is emotionless. And he walks out with, like, this disinterested expression. And Pam Hobbs is like, I haven't seen them till now. But she was laughing and whatever. I'm on TV earlier. And then, I don't know, This that was a weird moment. And then when they play the confession tape, it just makes no sense how the judge did not throw it out. All of the errors were interpreted as Jesse simply got confused. Jesse did not know he could leave. And he was allegedly not smart enough how to clean up a lot of that trace evidence. Like, this couldn't have been a first crime, is what the defense said. And honestly, it couldn't have. This could not have been a first crime. There was no blood at the scene. There was such, like, some of the wounds were so intricate, it called for precision. And... Jesse was not that person. I don't believe it wasn't due to intelligence or smarts. He just wasn't that person. He was 17 years old. And the fact that he did not know he could leave. What is high school for if not teaching you what your rights are? Like the fact, oh, it infuriates me. Um... So, Jesse also allegedly cried when he saw some of the photos, again, saying that he must be guilty. Um, Or, you know, traumatized. That's another thing that could happen. You could have just traumatized him by showing him pictures of mutilated children. Whatever. Whatever. But he's poor. So, really, 
his emotions don't matter. Um, there was a laughter, though, in the courtroom when the prosecutor pointed to the wrong side of the cheek where the boy was cut, and Gary Gitchell also laughed with him. And that was disconcerting. So the defense presented multiple experts on false confessions who easily disproved the testimony. Lack of, de- lack of detail. Inaccuracy. There was a narrative imbalance. And it was agreeing just to get it over with. And the judge sits there so disinterested. I don't think he even listened. And then the prosecutor went after one of these experts about how much he was paid. And then showed a clear prejudice because that expert was from California and not from around here. And then states that his findings only support the conclusion he wants. But that doesn't make any sense. He found that this was a false confession. That if it wasn't a false confession, he wouldn't be there stating it. Like, what a straw man argument. Just because he's supporting the conclusion he wants, which is the one that he found. I don't understand how anyone could sit through that trial. And then the closing statements for Jesse's trial... Jesse didn't tell them anything that they didn't already know. But the prosecutors said that their experts were just smoke and mirrors. And not to get distracted by the fact that they had no evidence. We all know Jesse did it. So Jesse is convicted and he gets life plus 40 years. And once again... Chris Byer's mother was a sadistic bitch and she says that she's going to mail Jesse a skirt for prison. And I was disgusted. Like what prison brutality is not okay. No matter what. Disgusting. And then John Mark Byers starts spreading a rumor that Damien had Chris Byers' uh, testicles in a jar of alcohol in his room. And of course, that spreads like wildfire. And Damien's like, I don't have that. Um, okay. But he and Jason are tried together. I bet that a motion to sever was denied. And that their alibis were, they were home with their families. And 10 bucks is like, Gary Gitchell is probably like, of course your family would alibi you. So what are you going to do? I was at home with my family. No, your family's not good enough. Give us another alibi. That's my only alibi. What the fuck? You're screwed then. Justy's testimony couldn't be used unless he would agree to testify in person. In exchange, they were willing to reduce his sentence, so Brent Davis would prosecute this one. And he straight up lied to the family, saying that Jesse told the police who took him in that he did it all, right? Straight up lied, because Jesse never did that. So Fogelman comes in to assist the prosecution, So all of the evidence that they have against Damien and Jason, without Jesse's testimony, 
Hold on, hold on to your hold on to your hats here. It's going to be wild. They had a single fiber on Stevie's shirt that matched Jason's mother. A single fiber with a secondary transfer. Then they had a couple of fibers of a shirt found at Damien's house. May have been on a Michael's Cub Scout hat shirt. They didn't say. They were like, it's better than hair evidence, even though there's no way to prove that it's exclusive. Did the boy, like, I mean, did the boys have shirts like this? The parents, the teachers, coaches, like secondary tertiary transfer. What are you going to say? I sat down on the subway and now that I have a fiber on my butt, I'm the Unabomber. Like what? Excuse me? And don't give me a polygraph. I have deep seated anxiety. I will admit to being the Zodiac. Ugh. Like, that is the thinnest rope to hang yourself with. Dear God. Then they have a few eyewitnesses. Because those are never wrong. They have children's rumors. They have a jailhouse informant. Oh. Oh. And then they have a knife found in a lake behind Jason's house five months after they were arrested. And that's it. That's it, people. That's all they got. So, they really need that false confession of of Jesse's. Okay? So, Jason's lawyer's name is Paul Ford. And I believe that Damien's attorney lawyer is Scott R. Davidson. So, Homie came through. Jesse did not testify because he would not lie. He's not about to commit perjury. Thank you, Jesse. You're a legend. So we have my favorite prosecution witness, witness for the prosecution. What a movie. Um, is Dr. Dale Griffiths. He is an expert on the occult. He says that they always wear black. They have black nail polish and they, uh, the fact that the murders were close to May 1st because of some holiday, um, this does nothing but create hysteria. And he ha- has a book that was seized from Damien's and Damien had drawn a pentagram on it. And they're trying to decipher some, like they're trying to figure out his teenage interests but I need to know the chain of custody here. I want that written down for me. Because what did you add to his work? What did you add? I know that you're tampering with evidence. I know you do this. Chain of custody, please. But anyway, so Paul Ford comes out and he's like, so what classes did you take to get your PhD? And he's like, I've already testified. And he's, Paul's like, you're still testifying. Uh, what classes did you take for your PhD? And the answer was none. Um, he pulls out a brochure for the college that he apparently got his PhD at. And it's basically like you call and you get a PhD. And I'm like, excuse me? I didn't know I could get a doctorate that way. So in an interview with the Eccles family, they basically all are like, we love to wear black. Johnny Cash wears black. Like, 
And they supported Damien. And I love the fact that they did this. They supported Damien. They were like, if they understood what he was trying to look into and figure out, they would see that it is not dangerous at all. Like, Wiccans aren't Satanists. It's more about nature and things of that nature, if you will. Um, So his family was really progressive and caring and loving and supportive And there was this quote from Damien himself at that time. He said, usually what people don't understand, they try to destroy or ridicule, try to make it look bad or wrong. And he calls West Memphis the second Salem, which I don't think is inaccurate. Um. So they ask him why he picked the name Damien. I believe like he had a Catholic ceremony and he got to pick a name and um damien says that he picked it after father damien of the hawaiian islands who worked his whole life to help lepers and then ended up getting leprosy and dying from it um and they were like you didn't pick that name because of satanism and he's like no and he owns to wicca and looking into it And he's being questioned on not conforming to the social norms of West Memphis. His testimonies are so difficult to watch because it's, it's so exhausting. Like, I just, he's genuine. He's just, he's just like, why do I have to answer for writing a Shakespeare quote in my notebook? Um, Terry and Pam also threaten him in an interview. So all parents have made um, credible threats to the lives of all three of these teenage boys. And as I've said, you know, Jason and Damien were best friends. They were like brothers. They were like weirdos who found one another. And that's honestly, like one of the greatest things that could happen is in this horrible place where they didn't fit in they found someone who was like them and it was you like you're not alone but we have this asshole his name is michael roy carson he was in for burglary and this is our jailhouse snitch he apparently just asked and just asked and apparently jason told him everything Things that make zero sense. So he asked Jason what he was in for. And Jason was like, yeah, I killed three boys with my friends. And this is what I did to them. It was fairly graphic. And the defense attorney blows holes, huge, like huge holes into the story. And the prosecution knew that he was lying and perjuring himself and still put him up there. Um, The defense got a call from a counselor who told Michael Roy Carson the story. And they weren't allowed to introduce that evidence into the trial. And the fact that he didn't get like arrested for perjury or anything like that is crazy. He lied under oath. Like, Clinton got impeached for that. What? And, yeah, so that didn't help. 
Um, so five months after the arrest is when this quote unquote knife is found at the bottom of the lake um, in the mobile home park where Jason Baldwin lives. The prosecutor calls it the murder weapon, but who could prove that they put it there? Anyone could at any time, before or after. Why were they even there? Did they have a warrant? Could it have been anyone else? Where's the chain of custody? Like, they found this knife, okay? So they get there. They suit up at 1030. They find the knife at 1130. Who put it there, right? Who put that there? I I just don't. How was that after five months? You go into a lake behind a kid's house and find, quote-unquote, the murder weapon within an hour? I don't buy it. Nope, that's coincidence. I'd throw it out. Um, so, Scott Davidson does question Dr. Peretti. So, it's time to tear apart the mutilation with Dr. Peretti. Don't worry, I won't get into it too close. So, he asked Dr. Peretti if he could pull off what they are alleging that these boys did. And Dr. Peretti says, no, he'd have a hard time because of how tedious and skilled one would need to be to do what was done to Christopher Byers. It would take a lot of time. He's like, okay, could you do it in the dark? And he was like, no. He's like, could you do it in the water? He's like, no. Could you do it with the mosquitoes? He's like, no. Could you do it with all of that? (laughs) And I found that deeply compelling, like, evidence right there. Because you just asked a a forensic pathologist who had the skills to do it if he could do it and then he's saying no he could not successfully do or replicate what was done additionally he'd say if he was bled out where's the blood even if it was in the creek there would be traces somewhere like on the sides it's like when you pour red kool-aid into the sink there's always some traces on the side and you gotta get the sponge out and you gotta clean off the sink. It was the dark, you know? And a couple fibers would not be the extent of what was found. So basically, Dr. Peretti said that this had to take place either in the water or somewhere else. And Dr. Peretti says he couldn't do it in the water. So... Therefore, it had to happen somewhere else. And very compelling, very much like where then where was the the murder location? Because this was clearly just the dump site. So um, also, while Damien's going through all of this, um, his son is born while he was in uh like kind of preliminary prison, and he couldn't have any contact with the son. His girlfriend, Dominique Tier, um, they had a son together, and uh, 
Um, adorable baby, by the way. Uh, I think that was weighing a bit on Damien of like, I can't see my son. And every time... I wouldn't say every time it was like the first time that Damien does get to see his son. Uh, I think like there's footage of each set of parents just hatefully glaring at him. And I just keep thinking to myself, he's so, so innocent and you're mad at him because he, he has a kid now. Like what? Anyway. So, the prosecutors ask him about Alistair Crowley because he is aware of who he is. And so therefore he's guilty. Um, so he's questioned about it a lot. It seems for zero reason. So he was doing a little like side project on all like different languages, but similar to like Elvish from Lord of the Rings, right? And he had written his name and his girlfriend's name and his son's name and then Alistair Crowley because that was the book that he had gotten this language from and that's what he could remember. And they were taking all that to mean, oh, he's a Satan worshiper because Alistair Crowley was a Satan worshiper who sacrifice children blah 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 blah. he's like i haven't read his books i just know the name and it was in this book that i had read and i was just trying my best to remember it and that was not great because i like i didn't understand how it was relevant or why it could even be brought up um and then there were two young teenage girls and their names were said in court. They weren't videotaped, but because their names were said in court and it's on the court uh, recordings, I'm going to say them, uh, Christy Van Bickle. Now she heard Damien say that he murdered the girls, or wait, the boys, I'm sorry. He murdered the boys. And for me, it felt like a child rumor or misheard sarcasm because it was the first time she'd ever seen him in her life. She doesn't remember hearing anything else before or after. She doesn't remember the context. So everything seems false. Putting her on the stand was a wild move because why she doesn't remember that his tone, she doesn't remember how he said it. She's just like, I don't remember. I don't remember. I don't remember. I don't remember. Then you didn't hear it. Like, unless you're confident in hearing when, where, how. Then what? Um, then there was Jody Bedford. She said that she heard him say that he killed three children and he had to kill two more before he could admit that he was done. And she said that he thought he looked too weird or he was weird because of how he looked and that's why she wanted to like you know tell the everyone what she heard it also made no sense um and it also rang false to me like i could only hear her voice therefore it seemed to me like someone who just wanted to get in on the action and it seemed false. 
or if he did say it and she overheard it, maybe he was saying it out of sarcasm for being ridiculed at that point. Like, she doesn't remember when she heard it. Like, if she heard it May 7th, that's after the boys were found. But if she heard it May, like, 6th, that could be different. But she doesn't know. Um, so the defense, uh, opens up an alternative theory and that is called Mr. Bojangles, which I do hate this theory, but it is a theory. It also shows the incompetence of the West Memphis police as if I haven't outlined it already. And Mr. Bojangles is the moniker given to a man who desperately needed help could have been the bad guy i doubt it from you know everything that we've discussed but it was it was a possibility this was shedding reasonable doubt so marty king is the manager of the mr bojangles or maybe it's just bojangles in west memphis Marty, from his testimony, uh, describes him as such. A black gentleman was in a woman's restroom sitting on the commode. Uh, He was bloody, muddied feet, and disoriented. So Marty calls 911, and a female officer was the responder. Did she go inside? No. She drove through. The drive-thru. Her name was Officer Regina Meek. I wonder if she ordered food. And she did not even look at the guy. Like, a bloody person is in a restaurant, possibly in need of help. They could be injured. They could have been a danger to themselves in that moment. But she couldn't be bothered. Uh, That was not her ward, um, even though... Her ward was like, I don't know, like, they said not that far apart from her ward. Um, She didn't make a report. And she was super defensive on stand and is like, that doesn't matter. I didn't connect the two. I'm leaving this behind. And also, who cares about black people? Not this officer. Yes, that's editorialized, but you know, mm. Wasn't that actually long of a distance? Could have popped in. Could have seen if this person was okay. Uh, Could have taken him to the hospital. Just saying. So two detectives came out the next day. They took a report, a description, and a blood scraping from the wall. Looking good, right? Wrong. They never sent it to the lab. The blood scraping was lost. One of the detectives, also a detective working on... The other case, the one we're talking about, goes, I'm sorry, sir. That's my mistake. I lost a piece of evidence. His face is like, of course I did. Duh. So if we're trusting this idiot to handle the other case, you just admitted to losing evidence. How can I trust anything on your badge like how can i trust that you have had any decent contact whatsoever whatever (sighs) 
Okay, so now we're going to have to talk about the John John Mark Byers knife. So he gives the makers of the Paradise Lost documentary a used hunting knife as a Christmas gift three weeks before Jesse Miss Kelly's trial began. There was blood on it, even though he said it was not used, and so they turned it over to the police. So he's a jeweler. Precision? I think so. So there was no mosquito bites on the boys, which means they either were dead or about to be when they got to that location. So someone had to carry the bodies from the kill location to the dump site. There was DNA on the knife, and DNA was in its infancy in 93-4. Both of the DNA types that they could glean did match John Michael... John Mark Byers and um, Chris, even though they're not blood related, they did have the same type that was that they could bring out from the the current. Uh, I don't know what I'm trying to say here, guys. I'm not a scientist; I'm just a armchair detective. But it was a serrated knife, and. It could match some of the the wounds. And so he was actually suspected even before the knife. So Byers has to get up on the stand and talk about his knife. And he looks like an absolute moron and guilty as fuck. He contradicts his own testimony with Gitchell. He seems like a guilty fool on the stand. And who's trying so hard not to perjure himself. He says he tried to cut venison or his, I'm sorry, this is the most disgusting thing ever, his toenails. Ew. Ew. Um, so, you know, at the time that he approximately gave Chris the spanking with the belt, that's why Chris wouldn't go home. And he allegedly has a brain tumor at the time. So the prosecution says that showing other possible suspects is apparently a desperate ploy, not the reasonable a doubt that it should be. Also, they asked Damien what kind of books he likes to read, and apparently reading Stephen King makes him a murderer. Keep that in mind, everyone who reads Stephen King. Uh, Damien's words are 100% twisted in various police reports. Damien says if they didn't get the answer that they liked, they'd go back and get me to say something else. There was zero officer accountability. So another woman who I'll bring up, and I'm actually going to tell you how it ends, even though most of these people I'm going to tell you next episode, Vicki Hutchinson. So she had a son who often played with the boys, um, Stevie, Chris, and Michael. She was actually at the police department to take a polygraph to see if she'd stolen money from an employer on May 6th before the boys were found. Now, her son Aaron claimed that Satanists who spoke Spanish killed them at their playhouse. Further statements were wildly inconsistent, and an officer naturally leaked portions of the statements to the press and incited growing beliefs of satanic rituals. So, June 1st. Vicky agrees to have microphones in her house and has Damien over. Jesse actually introduces them 
and Damien made no incriminating statements, but on the second, she claimed to have gone to a Wiccan ceremony with him, Jesse, him and Jesse in Terrell two weeks before the murder. Jesse is then questioned on the third. That's when he gives the false confession. She was never charged with theft, and she had no names or corroborating witnesses or an exact location. She did get the monetary reward. She, however, recanted to avoid criminal charges, and for money, she made up that little bit there. That little, mm-hmm. She played off what her son had to say, and she, uh, got some money, recanted, and was not, you know, tried for perjuring herself either. I don't understand, but okay. So, closing statements for the trials, or the trial for both Damien and, uh, Jason, Damien did testify. Jason did not. Um, from what I gather is that Damien was tried as an adult as he was 18 and Jason was not tried as an adult as he was 17. Uh, basically the prosecution came out with the religious history. Uh, people have always killed for religion and blah, blah. I'm like, yeah, have you heard of the Crusades? Like, you know, maybe you should take a look in your own religious history before you start swinging. But they wanted to condemn them on their life and their interests and all the fake bullshit that goes with being afraid of people who are other than yourself. And then the defense had excellent points. They were like, don't feed into the satanic panic. There's no difference in... Damien and Jason than yourselves but if you're going to say let's call it a cult killing and find someone weird that's calling it the satanic panic and the defense keeps showing facts while the prosecution is just spouting horrific like pastor like like rhetoric it's awful and so of course, as you know, they're both found guilty. Damien is sentenced to death, and Jason is sentenced to life in prison. So, I liked it best when, I believe it was Damien's sister said, or maybe it's an aunt. It's one of them. It's an aunt that said, Gitchell's going to get to retire on this, and he can now run for office and one of the other women that's a relative says, yeah, I got an office form, mayor of hell. And I'm like, perfect. He should run for mayor of hell. So that's part one. We have concluded to 1994. And in tomorrow's, next week's episode... We will pick up with 2007 and see how our men are doing as they continue to fight against the Arkansas legal system. But 
never fear. There is a resolution to one part of this case, but not the other. Because as I've said, this case is unsolved. And will be unsolved until Arkansas detectives finally pull their heads out of their asses and look for someone other than some sort of satanic ritual shit. So that's this week's episode. Tune in next week to hear part two and stay safe. Don't get into trouble and you know, be well. Thanks for joining us this week, but that's not all folks. Join us on Twitter, Instagram, or Patreon at T-A-L-K-A-B-T-F-A-C-T-S. That's Talk About Facts. Make sure you subscribe on whatever podcast platform you're listening to. Email suggestions to podcast at gmail.com. This has been a furious production, and I've heard that's all the rage. We'll see you next week. Bye.